you're listening to Strings Attached. I'm Asaf Maoz. In today's episode, I get to sit down and talk with one of the best pianists I know. I met a very thoughtful and insightful man. We spoke about listening, friendship, and how ignorance became the common denominator of our time. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends. And of course, follow the podcast on Spotify or Apple. This is my very first time hosting a nobility. Could you introduce yourself? <laughs> my name is Andrat Shiv, and I'm a musician, and I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you. Andras, I was fortunate to, to play with you, to share the stage with you a few times. And I will tell you my first encounter with you. I don't know if you remember that. Many years ago, we played together Brahms Piano Quintet in Jerusalem. And just before going to the first rehearsal, um, our mutual friend, Gabo Takac, he told me, you know, when you will play with Andras, it's like driving a Ferrari. And I didn't know what he meant. So the first rehearsal, you came in, we played through the piece, you didn't say much, and it was done. Second rehearsal, we played through the piece, we worked on a few passages, you didn't say much, and the rehearsal was over, and then came the concert, And it was like driving a Ferrari. I felt like each one of us in the, in the group was able to move or create a musical idea and you would immediately jump on it and react in, in milliseconds. I have two questions for you. Are you a man of fewer words? And what is listening for you? I'm not a man of few words in general, but when it comes to a chamber music situation or indeed in an orchestra situation which when I'm a so-called conductor uh, so I consider even an orchestra is, is like an enlarged chamber music group and the less you talk the better I firmly believe in it uh, in chamber music If there is not the right chemistry between the members, they can be excellent players, but if you have to talk too much, it will never work. It will not work with 10 rehearsals or with 80 rehearsals. And um, occasionally it's necessary to say something, but not too much. You ask about listening. Well, listening is, is essential. In music, it's, it's essential in, in life too. So you listen to what, what others are doing, what, uh, and you react to that. I find also the way I practice alone for myself. It is analytical. So... You don't go at a difficult piece of music with full speed and full volume. And it's very useful also for an orchestra. They are forced sometimes to swim immediately in deep water before they have mastered the notes. So it's, it's good to practice together um, slower and and uh, maybe a little softer and listening 
to one another and listen to the ensemble and listen to the intonation. Mm. So analysis is important, but then integration is also very important. When, when you have analyzed uh, the bits and pieces, and you have to put it together into a, a whole, because the audience does not want to hear an analysis. Then you go to the psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever taught how to listen, or is it something that you realize through practice? I was told, yes, I had very good teachers, wonderful teachers. Uh, George Kurtag, Ferenc Radosh, first of all, yes. Uh, but it came with experience. You develop a third ear. We all have two ears, which hopefully function well, but nobody can hear himself or herself perfectly. It's, it's not objective enough. So I try to develop a third ear, which is hopefully objective, and the third ear is like a person sitting in the 15th row in a concert hall, and try to imagine how the music sounds for that person, because it's very different from right here. And also, it's, uh, we practice in a, in a room, in a studio, Exactly. in a living room. So what do you do in a concert hall? What do you do in a rehearsal when, when the concert hall is empty? But in the evening when it's full, it sounds completely different. And then with your third ear and three ears, you slowly but surely adjust. But this is something that no teacher or no school can prepare you for. It can only come from experience, and you learn from your own mistakes. One of the names I've heard you mention a few times amongst your teachers or collaborators is Shandal Vig. And I'm very curious because I've heard this name from so many Hungarian musicians, and I'm curious, what was the magic of this man <laughs> that influenced so many fantastic uh, musicians coming out of Hungary? He was really extraordinary. In my case, I mentioned these wonderful teachers, Kurtag, Radosh, also there were others, Andras, Mihai, and but Hungary was a very closed place at that in, in the Soviet times. It had good and bad sides. I think it had a Good side that it was a wonderful system and a wonderful school. I would have never changed it for anything else. But it became too claustrophobic and also a little bit paralyzing because um, Ivan Fischer, wonderful conductor, great friend of mine, he described this as the Hungarian guru system, <laughs> a system of gurus, of these, these great, great musicians and teachers and professors, that everybody looks upon them, and they are like the judges. I mean, you have to go and 
before playing a concert, you have to play this piece to one of these gurus. And uh, if they say Amen, then then you are allowed to play. But the the world, luckily, doesn't work like that. So when I first met Shandor Vig, he liberated me from the paralysis of the gurus. Okay. Because he said, Oh, this is this is excellent what you are doing. And you say you say, Oh, because I said people would make fun of me in Hungary that I when I play my, my mouth is half open. So he said, thank God it's open, because that's why you are not verkrampft, uh, not, um, what is it, not tense. You are not constipated. <laughs> you, you can breathe freely. So he, he liberated me, he encouraged me and to, to say, trust your, your instinct, your instinct is good. In Hungary, we were always afraid, oh, uh, what is Mr. Radoš going to say? What is Mr. Kurta going to say? And we, you don't dare to play anymore. And you, you need that courage. You know, you, they used to say that the, the world of, of violinists was controlled by the Jewish violinists, whatever it means. And then you're talking about this Soviet era in Hungary, which created... So many wonderful um, Hungarian musicians that traveled the world and brought this wonderful. And as as a Jewish and Hungarian, I'm, I'm curious, what's your take on on is does it matter what your heritage is or just? Of course, it matters. But <laughs> I love this story when somebody asked the Nathan Milstein that Mr. Milstein why. Why are Jews so wonderful musicians? And he said, well, I know a lot of Jews who are terrible musicians. <laughs> so, you know, and yet it's, it's true because um, even in the Soviet times, I mean, all these, all my teachers, I don't think there was a single goy among my teachers. So they were basically all Jewish. Uh, Shandovig is an exception, absolutely not Jewish. Uh, but coming still back to Vig, he was really the most imaginative, uh, wonderful. He had such an imagination, such fantasy in uh, not just um, free playing rubato, but in colors. He could he could play so colorfully on the violin. I still played a lot with him as a violinist, and then, then he stopped, so I played with him as a conductor, and we recorded all the Mozart concertos. And again, you know, when, when he would start absolutely having no idea about the piece. He hasn't even maybe opened the score. And Day by day, he was getting better and better and better. And then we would come to a recording situation when we were already tired. And he was the oldest. He would get fresher and fresher. And, and, and he would come up with the most, most brilliant, wonderful ideas at the, at the end of the day. And Veig was always interested in folk music. Uh, like Bartok and Kodai were, so they would collect folk songs and always observe how the simple people 
in a village, how they sing, how they dance, and this was this, like the motto of Bela Bartok in Cantata Profana, only from the purest source, like spring water. And so there, that would answer your question, that it is, it is very important where we come from, but then we have to move further and, and learn other things to it and be influenced by other things, but never forget this source. You're talking so beautifully about Bautok, and I feel that you're, I see you sometimes almost an, as an ambassador to Bautok's music. You, you make a point to perform his, his music, and I wonder what is your attraction, what is your fascination by, by Bautok's music? Even objectively, I, I would, if I had nothing to do with Hungary and the language, I mean, to me, it is without a doubt that Béla Bartók is, is a giant and, uh, to me, the greatest composer of the 20th century. Um, however, he was still born in the 19th century. So he actually comes from an Austro-Hungarian empire and a very uh, Germanic tradition. Um, those days, everybody in, in those countries spoke German as well as uh, Hungarian or, or Czech or Slovakian or whatever. But, but German was to them what, what English is today. But much more important is that to me, Bartók is a, an idol, somebody I, I idolize as a, as a human being, as a, the purity. Before the Second World War and the, the years leading up to the Second World War, he, he was a very sensitive human being, and he could really have stayed in Hungary. Bartók was not Jewish, he was not... Uh, a communist, so uh, he had no racial or political reasons uh, to go away. But his reasons were humanistic. He said, I, I cannot stay in a, in a country that behaves like that. You know, they, they would say, of course, they had all the, all the anti-Jewish laws, they had in the arts, there were um, composers who were forbidden. Bartók was not forbidden, but he said, you know, if, if Mendelssohn is forbidden and Mahler is forbidden and Debussy is forbidden, then I don't want you to play my music either. And he, he really, he packed his suitcases and left to the United States where he was terribly unhappy, very poor, then his health deteriorated, and, and it was for him actually almost suicidal to go to the United States. And yet I think this was abs absolutely the only way to behave, and, and this is my, my ideal. Who am I? I'm really nothing, or nobody but at the moment we have in hungary a, a to me terrible political situation 
And to me, it's absolutely obvious. I don't know what anybody else thinks or does. It's their business. But to me, it's clear that I, I cannot go into this country as long as, as this system um, is successful. And even after that, uh, one would say, who are those people who, who vote for a government like that? It's a good question. Actually, and it's happening everywhere. It's happening here. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Turkey. Actually, uh, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, I know it's a, it's a hot potato to speak about politics amongst two musicians, but in Israel, the situation is nowadays that we have a new government that is trying to change the, the legal system. There are demonstrations every week since four mm -hmm. or five months. What's your take on that? What can you give us any advice, uh, seeing it from afar for, as an outsider? Again, uh, I, I'm not qualified to give advice. I can have. A, I I'm full of admiration for for you who who demonstrate because because this is unacceptable. What's going on? And um, there is nothing worse than keeping quiet or looking the other way and you have the right to demonstrate in a in a democracy in a free society and you have to exercise that right i wish i would see similar demonstrations in hungary i remember the uh, hungarians would go out to demonstrate for i don't know some new internet law or something like that but no i i should be fair there were in recent years, also good demonstrations, but nothing comparable to yours. I have no sympathy with French people paralyzing the country because you, they raised the, the pension age to 64. I mean, French people would like to retire with 40 and, and with full pay, payment. So. You know, but it's very popular to criticize artists or musicians for speaking out their political opinion, their political view. Mm. And you are obviously uh, a major player in this music scene. Are you not? Um, I don't know. Afraid is a big word, but does it bother you that you speak out your political opinion? You not at all. you get criticized for that? Of course I get criticized. I get a lot of hatred is maybe too strong a word. First of all, let's clear that to me the, the opposite of love is not hatred but ignorance. Ignorance is the worst thing in the in the world. To say that what does it have to do with me? I, I, I don't care. We have to care. We have to care for for other people, even in a small way. I fully believe that Arts and politics are not separable. They are dependent and interdependent. And they, they have always been dependent, whether in Renaissance Italy or when you depended on the Catholic Church. I mean, if you were a great painter, you, you, you got work from the from the catholic church or from the medici family or or some some other 
rich people and that's politics and and uh, not separable and also we musicians and artists uh, we also have to have um, gratitude i feel that a lot of musicians and theater people they they have the wrong attitude they think that the the world owes us a living just because we are here the, nobody owes us a living i mean we also have huge responsibilities and if in the arts or let's say in sports um you have the privilege that a lot of people are listening to what you are saying then then use that opportunity maybe not all the time on selected occasions but if if i see there is a some terrible injustice happening then it is my duty to to speak up even if it doesn't help maybe it's your voice is a is a drop in the ocean but it's an important drop I will tell you a story that you might remember. It was one of the most strange and sad um, situations I've I've been part of. We were in, in Verbier in the festival, and I was leading the the chamber orchestra, and we were playing with Radu Lupo, uh, Beethoven concerto. And during the rehearsal, he wasn't feeling well, and. He decided to leave. The next day he came to the next rehearsal, which was the dress rehearsal. And at some point he couldn't really play well. And he turned to me and he said, I'm sure you can find a better pianist than me. Closed the lead of the keyboard and left the stage. I think that this was probably one of his very last few concerts. That was the day of the concert and we didn't know what to do. And... Some of us, including me, approached you and asked you, would you be so kind to replace Radu? And the first thing you said was, I cannot play the piece he's playing. Not as, I cannot, as if I cannot play the piece, but I wouldn't do it. And then you offered a different piece, and we had a very short rehearsal, maybe half an hour before the concert. You jumped in, you played a Mozart concerto, and for me it was very sad situation to see such a fantastic pianist, a phenomenal pianist, in his last diminuendo. I'm very curious, is there, amongst the, the top echelon of pianos, pianists, is there respect, friendship, or animosity? How, how does, it, does it work? You, I mean, I'm sure you, you knew each other or you know many others for a very long time. How does it work? You mentioned uh, Radu Lupu, and I completely loved him. So we were very good friends, really. I wouldn't say very 
close friends, but there was a huge sympathy and friendship among us, between us. It's not so often that pianists are such good friends. It's also because of our solitary lifestyles. It's a very lonely profession. You can help it, uh, for example, by playing a lot of chamber music helps because then, then you are with colleagues, you are with friends. But you do your practicing to alone as a pianist, you do most of your traveling alone and playing solo recitals, you are also alone. So it's also very very seldom that we run into each other in in uh, hotels or um, foreign cities it happens but there are exceptions to the rule for example radulupu was really a, not just a very good friend but of my colleagues he was probably the one i i liked the most actually quite sure and there is nobody i like as much because he was a wonderful musician and very um, he was his own worst enemy in a way because he was always unhappy he said he always said oh i played like shit you know <laughs> even after the most wonderful concert i never seen him not we are also never completely satisfied but for me it's a f philosophical thing to say that today i played as well as as i could today tomorrow will be another day but for him it was never never good and he was a little bit if i may say uh, self-destructive because he didn't take care of himself didn't take care of his own health i remember very well this occasion it was very 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 sad absolutely and uh, i must say that i i really miss radulupu i miss colleagues like that and i miss artists like that i think that's really missing in the world there are so many bright kids and they play wonderfully but but not like him i'm always curious about someone like you or someone like like radu you deal with yourself as you're saying you're you're a lot by yourself how do you seek advice how do you seek comfort in times you know that you are alone and you need something how do you allow yourself to seek advice of course we all need help and we all need advice however to me it was always clear that for first of all i have a wonderful wife yuko who is a marvelous violinist and an excellent musician so I always listen to her and I always tell her, please be very honest with me and when, when it's time to stop, then, then tell me. I don't want to go on 
one day too long. But the time is not not <laughs> not yet here. But unfortunately, you 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 can see that some people don't don't see that objectively. And then, of course, one or two friends who whose opinion is very important to me. But then that's it. So uh, I don't belong to that group. I have, I know even even colleagues who. They run to too many people. They play for everybody. They want to hear their opinions. You know, why is that necessary? You want to hear the opinion of maybe a two, three, or maximum a handful of people who whom you know and you trust, and you you know that they have no reason not telling you the truth and they also have very good taste what is good taste for you that one could argue what means good taste but you don't want to hear a thousand different opinions it confuses you before we started this conversation we spoke a little bit about modern days way of of consuming art or consuming everything I found this quote, and I, I would like to read it to you. We live in a world where funerals are more important than deaths. Marriage is more important than love. Appearance is important than mind. We live in a packaging culture that despises the content. It's from uh, this Brazilian uh, thinker, Eduardo Galeano. What do you think about this sentiment? He's absolutely right. And it's not good. It's very superficial, very very globalized. Everything is too easily available through the internet, through technology. But that also means that people don't really value these things anymore because it's too easy. You spoke before about ignorance. Do you, do you think we are losing our curiosity? Yes, absolutely. Even music students, I mean, uh, you, you see in my scores, I mean, I always have the, like the handwriting of composers, facsimile editions, and uh, most young musicians or even my colleagues, they are not interested in that. How can you not be curious I mean, how is Haydn's handwriting it's it's fantastic or Bach's handwriting I mean the, a printed score cannot give you any idea about that when you see the the wavy lines of, of Bach then you will feel immediately how the music flows the music is not made of geometrically straight lines but you are very lucky or you were very lucky to to come through in an age that it was maybe there were fewer or it was easier to come through if you were excellent nowadays we know everything thanks to the internet it's more difficult to pave your way through the the sea of so much so many people have to maybe create an interesting packaging 
to go through, to come through as maybe excellent. What, what would you say to these people? The packaging is not so important. So you cannot bring things down to the smallest common de denominator. I think we have to thrive at some something better. Even even the average, I don't want to insult the average, there's nothing wrong with that. But um, let's say an audience in a concert hall consists of many different people with different intelligence, different knowledge. Some know that piece very well, some know it a little bit, and some have never heard it before. And you have to speak to all of them. I find that the public that comes to concerts today is much less educated than 20 years ago. And the 20 years ago, they were much less educated than 100 years ago. Because those days, let's say, people who came to a string quartet concert, they all played as amateurs. Some played better, some played worse, but you you played Beethoven's string quartet up with 127, uh, you could be sure that everybody in that hall really knows it or, or played it. And, uh, and now this is less and less the case. Maybe some of them are playing, most of them are listening to CDs, and others, they don't even do that. So we have to speak to these people, and now I, I like to speak to the audience, and this is a very difficult matter, because again, you have to find the, the golden middle road. And never talk down to the people. You have to respect them and, and give them this trust. And they appreciate it. They really do. So maybe, yes, in, in music we have to find new ways of presenting music. Uh, not just in the tradition of, which is a sequence of rituals. And that's maybe why we are losing young people. Uh, young people don't want to come to concerts, they say. Why don't they want to come to concerts? Because they don't, they don't like these rituals. But you, you can you, break down the walls. Do you see yourself as an educator or, or, or more of a, I want to say, elitist? or? Uh... No, I see myself as an edu educator. Uh, in, I am an elitist only that I, I do care for quality. I don't want to compromise on quality, but not elitist in in uh, in a way that that it should be expensive. For example, it can be absolutely free of charge. You're talking about talking to the audience, and now in the recent times, you're doing such a format of surprise concert, surprise mm. recital. Is the surprise for you or for the audience? Are you going to talk to them? Are you going to? Are you doing it in order to surprise yourself and let it be free so you don't have to commit to anything? No, I, I actually, I know in a, not a long time in advance, but I know I decide a few days before what I will play. Uh, but I want to surprise the audience. I don't 
want them to again look at this ritual there is a concert and we have to give the program a year or sometimes two years in advance it's a terrible burden it's a commitment because uh, and then they know oh he is going to play this uh, this sonata of mozart so then they the worst are those half educated people because the ones who who are fresh they are not influenced yet they don't they don't come with prejudice prejudice is the word so, so the half educated he he goes to his cd library and then he will listen to it with i don't know which performer and then he, he has a preconceived idea how that mozart sonata goes and maybe it doesn't go like that at all and you will play it very differently and he will be disappointed because it doesn't sound like like the cd that he has heard so with the surprise concert i i switch that off this is very good they they cannot do it they can also not how many times you see people sitting in the usually in the first row because i think the who who wants to buy a ticket to a concert in the first row it's like like also in a cinema you don't sit in the first row you know you get a pain in the neck exactly and the same thing and you sit in the first row in a concert the, the whole music goes above your head your head but they sit there and they are the ones who are reading the stupid program book while you are playing and in, they are reading this and turning the page and instead of listening so in my surprise concerts there there is no program book there's no page turning it's very good <laughs> andas thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me i appreciate it very much of course thank you asa very kind of you thank you very much to sell andras shif for this enlightening conversation i really hope you enjoyed it as much as i did i encourage you to comment on this episode on the facebook page strings attached podcast or find me on Instagram and do so. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. I'm Asaf Maoz, and thank you for listening to Strings Attached. Mm-hmm.